John chapter 9, and we're going to start reading in verse 15, and we're going to read through verse 25 as our text. As I said, it's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but uh, I'm hoping that by reading um, reading through this, it, it will help to kind of give you an idea of the story here. And to some of us, this is a familiar story to others Maybe not so much. John chapter 9 and beginning with verse 15. Then again, said the Pharisees, uh, then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. The Jews had had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man, they're talking about Jesus, we know that this man is a sinner. Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. My title may seem a little unusual this morning. I will explain momentarily. I want to talk to you about an ironclad case. An ironclad case. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices, ask the Lord to speak to us. Saints, I need your help today. Amen. Let's get a hold of God. There are souls that need to hear the voice of God today, and I want the Word of God to touch them. I want the Spirit of God to help them. Let's pray together, everyone.
Praise God. Would you take just a moment and worship the Lord before you're seated today? Would you do that? Just, just let him know how much you love and appreciate him right now. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. I need you, God. I need you, God. Help us, O oh Lord, today in Jesus' name. Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. God bless you. You may be seated. As I said, I want to talk to you about an ironclad case. Now let me let me offer to you. Um, an explanation before I get to our scripture today. The word ironclad was a term that was first used to describe certain naval vessels during the mid to late 19th century. You understand that up until that time, all of the ships that were built and were used were strictly made of wood. And uh, uh, somebody got the idea of doing something to try to enhance and protect these ships during a time of war. Because, you know, a wooden ship, if it took a cannonball uh, anywhere, it's, it's pretty much gone. It's just done for. And, uh, and so somebody got the idea that they would take these ships and they would sheathe them in iron armor. Um, they wanted warships that uh, were not so vulnerable to the explosive shells that were fired at them during times of battle. It was 1859 that France uh, launched the very first of what came to be called the ironclads. That was the name. It was used as a noun. It, 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 uh, they were called the ironclads. And France uh, launched the first one in 1859. And uh, by, by 1861, just two years later, Britain's entire Royal Navy became an all-armored battle fleet. The first clash, uh, interestingly, at least to me, maybe, uh, maybe to some of you, um, history's not that important, but, but I enjoy looking at historical facts, and I found it interesting that uh, the very first clash uh, of these ironclads, the first time that they were actually used in war, uh, both against other ironclads and against wooden ships, uh, took place in 1862 during the American Civil War. And these clashes soon made it abundantly clear that the ironclad was the most powerful warship afloat. You can imagine why. If you've got a wooden ship and your enemy has an ironclad, you can fire off cannons all you want, and it's just not doing a whole lot. But they can, they can sink your ship with one good shot. 
And so everyone began to realize that the best thing they could do was to wrap their ships in this iron or steel and, and somehow protect their ships. And, and it, it became a, a common term then that was used here in uh, America as well as in England. Uh, it, it went beyond being just a noun and, and it became an adjective. It became a descriptive term. And somebody started talking about how, writing up ironclad contracts. And, and when they did that, they meant we're writing a contract that, you know, just it can't be broken. You can't find a way to penetrate this contract. It's, 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 it's well sealed. It's done. It's settled. And, and, and it also then was applied to uh, legal cases uh, when someone went to court and uh, in fact, the Oxford Dictionary says that the word ironclad uh, has come to mean that it is impossible to contradict. Amen. Impossible to contradict. And so, and so when a lawyer says we've got an ironclad case, then in his mind there is nothing that the opposing legal team can do to bring his case down. It's unsinkable. It's unstoppable. They've got everything they need. It's wrapped in iron. This is no wooden boat out here floating that's going to come down with the first grenade lobbed at it. But but it's going to keep on sailing and doesn't matter what they throw at us. We Our case is settled and you can be sure we have one. Amen. Now, now you just you just hang on to that little piece of knowledge, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull from that in a few moments. But I just wanted to explain my title to you and why I've chosen this as a title: an ironclad case. That is a case that cannot be argued. It cannot be denied. It cannot be defeated. Praise God. Amen. And so keep that in mind. Now, let's go to our text. And as I said, you might want to just keep John chapter 9 open. In fact, uh, in order for us to really understand John chapter 9, as I've often taught this church, you don't ever want to just pull something out of context. You want, you want to take it in the context in which it's written. You want to know a little bit about what's happening before and what's happening after. Amen. In fact, just uh, in the last uh, 24 hours, I've been dealing with some folks over some scriptural error, not people in this church, but, but uh, somebody else that, that uh, has, has, has contacted me and is trying to, to, to address some scriptural error. And, and, and I said, look, if you want to understand this verse, you need to read what's before it and what's after it. You can't pull this one verse out of the middle and, and get a good picture. That's, that's just good practice when it comes to understanding the Bible. Now, now, what we have here, John chapter 9, the story that I've read to you is obviously the story of a blind man who, is, uh, who has been healed by Jesus. But, but I want us to go back to just prior to the healing of this blind man. And, and I, I want us to, to, to get a glimpse of what's going on. Now, um, let's, let's look 
first of all, at the end of chapter 8. Because chapter 9 is pretty well uh, entirely devoted. It's uh, the most of chapter 9 is devoted to this one story. And so I want us to back up to the end of chapter 8. And, and I want to tell you that, that in chapter 8, Jesus was having a conversation with a group of Jews. And he began to talk to them and began to tell them some things about himself. And the more that he talked, the less happy they were. And the more he talked, the less they agreed with him. And the more he talked, the more vehement they became in their arguments uh, about uh, or, or towards him. And, and until it finally reaches a place that Jesus made a couple of statements that really just, they were the straws that broke the camel's back in all of this. And uh, let's, let's go to John chapter 8. If your Bible's open to chapter 9, you should be able to see it right here. Some of the last verses of chapter 8. Uh, let's start with verse 56. Read verses 56 through 58 for me. And, and let's, let's catch a little bit of this conversation. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. All right, now, now, now look, this is, this, this is where it really starts getting heated. Because Jesus is standing before them as a man that history tells us was probably in his early 30s at this time. And here he is talking about Abraham who existed thousands of years prior. And he says to the Jews, Abraham saw my day and was glad to see it. <clears throat> now, the Jews understood the implication, but they wanted him to come right out and say it. So they're going to push him. Now, if you don't understand the implication, just stay with me because I'm going to show you what it was. But they knew what he was implying, but they wanted him to come out and say it. So they pushed him a little farther. Verse 57, read. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old. You're not old. even 50. Hast thou seen Abraham? And yet you claim that you've seen Abraham? And here's where Jesus makes the statement that just drives them over the edge. Read. Jesus said unto them. Jesus said to them. Verily, 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 verily you, or truly, truly, I tell you. Before Abraham, before was, Abraham was. I am. I am. Do I have any one God people in the house this morning? Would you act like you're one God people this morning? Hallelujah. All right, look, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, look, that may not say a whole lot to you, but it said everything to the Jews. You see, this phrase, I am, was the exact same phrase that was spoken to Moses when Moses was standing at the burning bush. And the voice was speaking to him, saying, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and, and Moses said, well, look, when I go back to your people and say that you sent me, I got to give them a name. What is the name of the one that's sending me? And he said, you just tell them, I am. 
The Greek version of the Old Testament says, Ego I me. Ego I me. And I'm telling you, those are the exact same words that Jesus spoke. He said, Before Abraham was, Ego I me. He was claiming to be the voice, the God that spoke out of the burning bush, uh, uh, that spoke to Moses. That's what Jesus was claiming at that very moment. Well, hallelujah. He was letting them know, yes, Abraham saw my day. Yes, I saw Abraham. I was there, in fact, before Abraham. Before Abraham was, echo I me. Hallelujah. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, praise God. Now, they weren't just upset about this. They weren't just upset about this. They were literally ready to kill him over it. And there's a reason why. Because you see, in their religion, in their Jewish religion, if anybody claimed to be God, that was blasphemy of the highest order. And it was punishable by death. That's why, read what what the next verse says. Then took they up stones to cast at him. took they up stones to cast at him. So hang on just a minute. So, so they took up so They were ready to kill him. You know why? Because they understood. He wasn't claiming that he was somebody else. That he was just another man or just another prophet. They were ready to kill him because his claim in their mind was blasphemy. He was claiming to be God. Amen. Well, let me tell you, it wasn't an empty claim. He was God. He meant God was manifest in the flesh. Well, praise God. To wit that God was in Christ. He meant reconciling the world unto himself. This was God in human form. So he didn't blaspheme. He was telling the truth. But they were ready to kill him for a violation of their religion. And so they took up stones to cast at him. And, and what happened? But Jesus hid himself. Jesus hid himself and went out of the, temple, out of the temple. Going through the midst going of them. Going through the midst of them. And so passed so by. So passed by. Now, if you've got your Bible open, that's the last verse of chapter 8. So the last thing we read in chapter 8, they're ready to kill him. And he's having to hide himself for a few minutes until he can ex- excuse himself out of the crowd and get out of the temple. Right? Now you would think, you would think that if they're ready to kill him and it's not his time to die just yet, you would think if they were ready to kill him that Jesus would have only one thing on his mind. I got to get out of here. I need to change locations. Everybody out of my way, clear the path. I've I've got to go find someplace else to minister for a little while. Right? Are you with me this morning? So so you would think that's what's going on. But but we find this is the way chapter 8 ends. But then let's pick up chapter 9, verse 1. The very next thing that said... And as Jesus passed by... As Jesus passed by... He saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, now... 
Now, this word saw, I found this interesting. I don't want to bore you with, with all of this, but, but, but this is not the usual Greek word that's translated saw. This, this word means more than just to see with the eyes, but it, it, it always means one of two things. Either uh, it means to know or it means to perceive, to recognize. It's not just, you know, you can see things and, and uh, uh, not really know what you've seen. You understand what I'm talking about? I just, I, I, I was just telling Brother Goff uh, just a few moments ago. I was standing up here, uh, and, and uh, just out of the corner of my eye, I didn't look over there to see who it was, but, but I, I thought, who's that man standing on the front pew? And he had his mask on, and I thought it was a, a guy with a beard. And I, I, and I knew Brother Goff didn't have a beard, so I, I, just out of the corner of my eye, I'm thinking, who is this man that's over here? on the front pew today. I wonder who that visitor is, but I didn't want to turn and, and stare. And so, so then when he walked up on the platform, it dawned on me, oh, that's Brother Goff with his mask on. That's not a beard. And, uh, and so, so I'm telling you, it's possible to see things and not recognize what you saw. But, but in this Greek word, Jesus didn't just see the man. There was a perception. Jesus recognized in this moment that here is a man which was blind from his birth. I'm going to tell you, amen. Now, I, 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 I want you to hear what I've got to say here this morning. I want to tell you, Jesus, again, he's, he's just uh, had to, to, to escape from the crowd that wants to kill him. He's making his way out of the temple. He's, he's, he's on his way out, no doubt, in a hurry. But he sees a man there that's been blind from his mother's birth. Jesus sees it. He perceives there's a need in front of me. And I'm going to tell you at that moment, it didn't matter if there was a whole crowd coming to kill him. It didn't matter what else was going on because that's the kind of God that we serve. Jesus realized uh, there's a need present right now and nothing else matters. My own welfare, my own well-being, my time, nothing else matters. Uh, there's somebody here that needs what I can give them. Oh, hallelujah. I tell you, I felt this so strong, amen, as I was preparing for this lesson this morning, not knowing who would be here or who might be listening online. But I just want to tell you, sometimes the devil tries to convince us uh, that God's too busy for us. Amen. Let me ask you something. What value is a blind man going to be to Jesus? Of what good and what purpose can this blind man amen, do for Jesus and the kingdom of God? God. But I'm going to tell you, that didn't matter to him. Nobody was too little in Jesus' eyes. Nobody was so insignificant in Jesus' eyes. Nobody lived a life that didn't matter in Jesus' eyes. He was willing to forget about the pursuers. He was willing to forget about his own safety. And he stopped. And he said, here's a need. And can I tell you this morning that even sitting right here in this sanctuary, listening this morning online, I want to tell somebody, amen, you are not too insignificant for God. You're not, amen, too small on God's scale. I'm telling you, you're the one that's here right now with a need. You are the one that he sees and you're the one that he has come to stop and help. 
Amen. He's not come for all those that are super righteous. He's not come for all of the mega religious. He came for those that were in need. And he stopped by here today because he sees and understands and he knows, hallelujah, that you have need of him. And that's more important to him than anything else. Well, praise God. Now, unfortunately, his disciples at this moment didn't have the same mindset he had. They're concerned about other things. Read verse 2 for me. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What? Jesus was fleeing from pursuers. He stops beside a man, and, and evidently, I mean, the way that John says this in, in verse 1, when he says this man was born blind, and the way that the disciples are talking about it, evidently this man was well known. It must have been something that everybody knew that he'd been born blind. I don't see that there's any conversation. They're not asking the man question, how long have you been blind? This was something they just knew. It was common knowledge. And so here Jesus stops in his tracks, looks at the blind man, and all the disciples can think about is who sinned? We want to point fingers at somebody. Somebody's wrong here. Either this man or his parents did something wrong for this to happen, which seems kind of silly to me. I'm sorry. I, I'm just being honest with you. I'm just being transparent. But how could you blame this man for being born blind? How could you say it was some sin of his that he was born this way? That doesn't make sense to me, but it made sense to whoever asked the question. And uh, so who, who sinned, Lord? Please explain to us the theology behind all of this. And I'm here to tell you again, not to throw stones at anybody, but, but, but listen to me. It's sad that far too many religious people and sometimes even entire churches are more interested in pointing fingers at someone's sins than they are at introducing them to Jesus. You understand these are the men that had been with the Lord. They'd watched him perform miracles they'd seen what he could do and they're standing here right now with a blind man and instead of saying hey sir let me show you let me tell you about the one that's standing in front of you I know you can't see him but let me tell you what a wonder worker he is let me tell you about some of the miracles he's performed let me tell you he can do it for you no 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 they're standing there trying to who's to blame who's to blame who sinned here Come on, saints of God. I'm telling you, if we're not careful, we develop that same rotten attitude. Amen. We're more concerned about a person's sin. I'm going to tell you what our job is. Let's just introduce them to Jesus. Let's take them to the master. Let's let him deal with the sin. Let's let him take care of the problem. Come on, somebody. I'm telling you, that's Jesus' job. That's not my job. My job is to introduce people to him. Well, hallelujah. 
and, and in fact, you kind of see this in the Lord's response. Verses 3 and 4, read. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the good works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh, when no man can work. Now, now let me just give you the rigging revised version here. He said, Get your eyes off the sin and get them on the glory of God. Why don't you just let me do what I came to do? I've got one purpose here, and I don't have a lot of time left. Well, I'm telling you, if, if you know anything about the book of John, we're, we're at chapter 9 here, chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. That was the thing that caused the Pharisees to say, we got to kill him. That's when they started conspiring. That's when Judas decided he wanted to try to find a way to sell the Lord. Amen, it was chapter 11. We're almost to that point in the Lord's ministry. And he said, the night's coming and we're not going to be able to work. I've got a limited amount of time to do what I need to do. Would you quit worrying about all of the theology? Quit worrying about who sinned and who didn't sin. Quit trying to figure out who's to blame. Just let me do what I was sent to do. Well, hallelujah. Now, Having said all that, and I gotta hurry, I gotta hurry. Having said all that, look at verses six and seven. I, I want to, I want to take a moment. This is another thing I want you just to tuck away there in your memory, but I want you to see when Jesus actually heals this man, I want you to see what he did, exactly how he went about it, because that's important to where I'm going today. Uh, read for me verses six and seven. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Yeah, now, 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 look, three things that I really want to point out to you, that, again, I want you just to tuck away and, and, and hang on to, just a few minutes, I'm going to bring them back. But I want you to notice what Jesus did. He, number one, he used saliva. Number two, he made clay, verse 6 says. He made clay. This was, this was an act of work. He had to stir it up. He had to work with it. All right, so he... He used saliva, he made clay, and he anointed the blind man's eyes. And then he said, go and wash. All right, just, just keep, this, keep this in mind. And, and, and again, just in case you're worried, I'm not going to read every verse here. We, we will skip a few of them along the way. But there's just so much here that I want... I want you to see that I'm not just making this up. I want you to see it really is what the Bible says in all of this. And so, so look, here are some things that you need to know. So, so what happens, Jesus heals this man. The Bible said that he went, uh, he went his way. Did we finish that? Verse 7. He went his way and, and washed and he came seeing. He came seeing. 
And so when he gets back, you can read it there in the scripture, the Bible says that his neighbors were amazed. His neighbors had known him all his life. His neighbors knew when he was born. His neighbors were aware that this man had not been able to see for his entire life. And now all of a sudden, he can see. And they're amazed that this transformation has taken place. In fact, they're so amazed that some of them didn't really believe that was him. Read verse 9. Some said, this is he. Some said, this is he. Others Others said, said, he is like him. It's a, what what do they call it, doppelganger? It's it's his lookalike. But he said, I am he. I am he. So they're, they're so shocked that a blind man can now see that they're doubting this is really the same man. And he has to convince them, no, no, no. This is not some hidden twin you didn't know existed. This is really me. And so then they asked him, well, how did this happen? How did this transformation take place? And I want you to pay attention to the answer that he gave. Because he gives them a fairly detailed explanation in verse 11, and that's important. Verse 11, read. He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus. A man that's called Jesus. He identifies who did it. Made clay. He made clay. And anointed mine eyes. He anointed my eyes. And said unto me. He said to me. Go to the pool of Siloam uh and wash. Right. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Yes. So, so I mean, he, he gives basically all the details. He doesn't say what Jesus used to make the clay. But he does state that he made clay. And that he anointed his eyes. And he sent him to the pool to wash. So he gives them a, a detailed explanation. But now, I think that he probably was shocked by the response they were shocked that he was changed but I think he was shocked at the way they responded to his story because you would think that they would have been excited and happy and rejoicing hello I mean if you lived next door to somebody that had been born blind You'd known them all your life. You were friends with them. And one day they come walking up to your door and they can see. How would you feel? You'd be happy for them. You'd be excited for them. But these neighbors weren't so excited. In fact, they did something that, again, I don't think he expected them to do. They took him to the Jewish leaders. Now this 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 was this was um, this was uh, not a good thing. This is kind of like the kids on the playground taking you to the principal's office. That was that was what was going on. 
the Jewish leaders in those days were concerned about keeping the law of Moses. In fact, they'd added to it extremely. And they were so wrapped up in it that they had their own court and their own judges. And they tried cases and determined whether somebody had kept the law or not. And they, though they were not granted permission under Roman law to put people to death, what they would do is they would consider them dead. They would put them out of the synagogue and consider them dead. And if that ever happened, if the Jewish leaders ever did that to somebody, then the family was not to speak to them. I mean, you literally had to treat them as though they didn't exist. If they walked up to you and spoke to you, even if you're the mom, the dad, the grandpa, you can't say hi. It was, it was they pronounced them dead to everyone who was a Jew. And so to be called before the Jewish leaders was not a good thing. And so here's this man. He's excited. The first time in his life he can see. And instead of everyone rejoicing with him, they're taking him to the leaders and putting him on trial. For what? For being able to see. And so here he is. And the Jewish leaders begin to question him. Now, now, now you've you got to understand, what was it that caused these neighbors to be so upset about him being able to see? Why wouldn't they just be excited about it? Well, John adds a little detail in here that he didn't tell us when he talked about the miracle happening. But he tells us now, after we find out that the man's being taken before the Jewish leaders... Then we find out this detail in verse 14. And it was the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath day. When Jesus made the clay. When Jesus made the clay. And opened his eyes. And opened his eyes. See, this was the problem. Had this happened on Monday, everybody would have been happy. If it would have happened on Friday, it would have been a good Friday. But it happened on the Sabbath day. And see, some of these rules that the Jewish leaders had created, they weren't in Moses' law. They added them to Moses' law. They'd created certain rules about what it meant to keep the Sabbath day. Moses' law simply said to keep the Sabbath day. Remember it, keep it holy. But they had to define what that meant. And so they set out a list of how far you could travel and what you could do and what you couldn't do and what was considered work and what was not considered work. And uh, listen to some of the rules they had. Now, I'm not making this up. This, this was some of their rules in Jesus' day about keeping the Sabbath. Um, making clay out of sand on the Sabbath was considered work and it was a violation of the Sabbath to make clay. All right. Um, 
They also had a rule. It was positively forbidden to apply saliva to the eyelid on the Sabbath because they considered that the application of medicine. And if you're applying medicine, you're doing work. Now, this is how extreme they got. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you the truth, all right? So, so if you use saliva, so you know, you can't take an ointment. So people were, you know, I, I heard a man talk about one time, said grandma's spittle could fix everything. Hairs that were out of place, dirt that didn't get washed off. You know, grandma's spittle could fix everything. Um, so, so, if, if, they couldn't, if they couldn't use medicines and ointments and their eyes were dry or they had a problem, then they learned to just use saliva and kind of moisten them a little bit. And so somebody somewhere said, nope, 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 that's, that's still applying medicine and so that's violation of the Sabbath and you can't do that. Can't use saliva on your eyes on the Sabbath day. That's breaking the Sabbath. And, uh, and, and, and so, so listen, Jesus knew. He knew all of these rules. He was raised a devout Jew. He knew every one of these written rules. And they were already so mad at him in chapter 8, they wanted to kill him. But on his way out, he sees a blind man. And I just kind of I, I, I just kind of see him smiling and saying, let me really mess with their minds. <laughs> did you ever wonder why? Why did he spit on the ground? Well, it seems to me, I know now, Brother Goff, it was intentional because he knew. This was not God's rule. This was man's rule. And so he knew. He knew what he was doing. So he used saliva. He made clay. And he anointed the eyes, all three of them, violations of the Sabbath. And when this man told his neighbors that those three things had happened on the Sabbath, it's time to go to court. We're not putting up with this. You're breaking every religious norm that we have. Are you still with me this morning? You're breaking every religious rule that we've ever set up. And so they bring him in. And I'm telling you, these rulers, Now, I, I, I don't know if this was the Sanhedrin, but I can promise you, court was in session. The Bible doesn't say it was the Sanhedrin, which makes me think it probably wasn't, because usually they would identify if it was. That was their high, that was their supreme court. But, but it was probably a court of some kind. The kangaroo court, if nothing else. But it was a court of some kind. And so the court was in session. And so here he comes. Now listen. It wasn't really this man that they were so worried about. That's not who they were concerned about. They've been looking for ways to put Jesus down for a long time. 
And so now this man comes in and here's what happens. So verse 14 says it was the Sabbath day when he made the clay and opened the man's eyes. So verse 15, here's what, here's what happens next. Then again, the Pharisees also asked So the him, Pharisees ask him. How he had received his sight. Now, pay attention. Do you remember what he told his neighbors? Gave his neighbors very detailed explanation. Now he's standing in court. And they ask him, how did you receive your sight? And he said unto them. He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Uh, he, they didn't say anything about making clay. He didn't say he anointed my eyes. Now, now look, I'm telling you, the man, the man was grateful for what Jesus had done. He didn't know who Jesus was at that point, but he was grateful for what, and who wouldn't be. And he was doing his best to protect Jesus in the midst of all this. But, but it, it is apparent to me he was choosing his words very carefully. He didn't say he made clay. He didn't say he used spittle. He didn't say that he anointed my eyes. He just, he, he put clay on my eyes and, and I went and washed it and now I see. And I'm telling you, they were not happy. Because no doubt when that crowd brought him in, they had already told what he said at first. They'd already heard the first testimony, not from him, but from everyone else. So what's their response? The very next verse, look at this, verse 16. Stay with me now. Verse 16. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God. This man is not of God. Because he, keep because the Sabbath he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner said, do such wait, miracles? Wait, 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 wait. How can a man... That's a sinner. Do what this man just did. And there was a division among them. And, and that word literally means they split into two groups. Some said, he's not of God. Others said, well, we're not so sure. So they were divided about it. And so the trial began in earnest. And questions began to come. And then the next thing that we read, verses 18 and 19, listen to this. But the Jews did not believe. So now the Jews him. don't believe concerning him. That he had been blind. And Just like some of sight. those neighbors. Now this can't be that man. This has got to be somebody else. Now these Jews are saying, well, it, yeah, you got the wrong man. This is not. We, we, no, no miracles here. No way. We know Jesus is a sinner. He could not have opened the eyes of the blind. So this is not the blind man. So they did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until... Till they called the parents of him that had received his sight. Yes, read. And they asked him, them, saying. So they asked the parents. Is this your son? Is this your son? Whom you say has bo was born blind. You say he was born blind. How then doth now he now see? So, so here, the parents are now in court. You tell us, is this your son? And you said he was born blind. So tell us how he sees now. The parents are on the stand and they're under the gun. And they're, they got the spotlight on them. 
And in yet another sad turn of events, even his own family turned against him. Let's read verses 20 through 23. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. We know, we know this is our son. We know he was born blind. But by what means he now sees? We don't know how he sees. We know not. Or how we, or who we, has we opened don't his know eyes. who opened his eyes. We know not. Uh huh. He is of age. So I tell you what, he's of age. Ask him. Just bring him back on the stand and let us go. We, we'll just you let him answer for himself. We we don't want any part of this. He shall speak for himself. He'll speak for himself. Isn't that a sad way for parents? Amen. Isn't that sad? They just threw him under the bus. We don't, we, don't want it. we don't want you to come against us. You just let him answer for him. Why aren't they, why aren't they defending him? They've had to take care of him. And now all of a sudden, he's got his independence. He can see he's free now. You'd think they'd be rejoicing, but they are afraid. Let me prove it to you. Let's keep reading. These words spake his These parents, words spake his parents because, because they, feared the they feared the Jews. Read. For the Jews had agreed already, uh -huh. if any man did confess that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Yeah. Therefore his parents said his parents, he is of age, ask him. So, so see, they, they'd already made another rule. If anybody says Jesus is the Messiah, then we'll put you out. And that meant you're going to be marked as dead. You can have nothing to do with the Jewish people anymore. You can't come to our church. You can't have anything to do with us. You're dead. We won't even speak to you if you say Jesus was the Messiah. So they don't even want to get close to that. So they're not going to answer the question, he's of age. You can't put this on us. You just let him answer for himself. What a sad story. And So once again, the religious leaders called the man in. And they made their case. And they believed at this moment that they had an ironclad case. All right, let's read verse 24. Then again called they the man that was blind. Then they called the man again and said. And said unto him, give God the praise. All right, we, we don't know how it happened, but just say that God did it, all right? Just give God praise but we know we that know this, man, that is a this man is a sinner. End of discussion. That's our, we've proven it. He's violated our rules. He's broken our religious norms. He's gone against everything we've ever taught. He's a sinner. End of discussion. Case closed. But you see, I don't know how they did it back in those days. But thankfully here in America, if you're the accused, the accuser doesn't get the last word. The accused gets to make the closing argument. And it seems like that's what's going on here. Because the court, amen, the, the, the prosecuting attorney has just made his ironclad case, this man is a sinner. We rest our case. And then the young man steps up for his closing argument. Amen. And here is what he says in verse 25. 
He answered and said, he answered and said whether he be a sinner or no. I'm not going to debate you on the theology. I don't understand how he did all these things that you've said were wrong. I don't know how he got around all that. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I Read. know not. I don't know. But... One thing, One I, know thing I do know, whereas I, whereas I was blind, now I, now I see. Case closed. I want to tell you, those Jews thought they had the ironclad case, but they weren't the ones. It was this man that had been born blind. How do you argue with that? How do you argue with the fact that this man is not what he used to be? He may have been born blind. He may have lived his life blind. But he's not a blind man anymore. He's not what he once was. How do you argue with that? Pull out your scriptures. Bring out your arguments. Let's talk theology till you're blue in the face. But when it all comes down to it, here's the end of the story. There's been a transformation. And you can't argue with the change that Jesus brought to this man's life. It may not fit your norms. It may not agree with what you think religion ought to be. It may not go, amen, along with what you were always told. But here is the closing case. And friend, it's ironclad. Amen, I'm here to tell you, when Jesus changes a life, it's forever changed. There's a transformation. It doesn't have to go by your book. It doesn't have to go by my rules. Jesus knows how to change lives oh hallelujah amen I know that some amen maybe some that are here maybe some that are listening Maybe someone that someday is going to click on this message online and listen online. I'm going to tell you, hey amen, you may not like the way we worship. You may not understand, hey amen, how excited we get. You may not be able to figure out why we stand to our feet, why we clap our hands, why we shout out loud. It may not fit all of your religious norms. It may not go along with all the guidelines that you've been taught down through the years that religion ought to be. Amen. Uh, uh, listen, I'm not here. Amen. I'm not here to throw stones at anybody, but I'm just going to tell you something today. Amen. I have only one case to present. I present to you lives that have been transformed. It may not fit your mold, but I'm telling you, you're surrounded by people that are not what they used to be. They don't live like they once lived. They don't do what they used to do. They don't talk like they used to talk. They don't walk like they used to walk. Somebody said all that carrying on, talking in tongues is of the devil. My response, if that's the case... First time I ever knew of the devil to ever cause a man to give up smoking, give up drinking, give up immorality. Come on, somebody. First time I ever knew of the devil to ever make somebody's life better. 
Well, praise God. I'm going to tell you, you may look around and think, oh, all these people were raised in this. But no, my friend, you don't know where these folks came from. You don't know the story behind the people that sat on these pews. You don't know the things God delivered them from. We got ex-drug addicts sitting here. We got ex-alcoholics sitting here. Amen. We got ex-fornicators sitting here. We got people sitting in this congregation that used to be something entirely different. And again, it may not line up with everything you think the scripture says but I'm here to tell you they once were blind but now they see they once were bound but now they're free how do you argue with that oh hallelujah 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 how do you argue with a life that's been transformed? Not perfect. Not perfect. Far from it. But much different. Much better. Where there used to be turmoil, there's now peace. Where there used to be hatred, there's now love. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Where there used to be loneliness, they found family. Oh, I'm preaching today. I'm presenting to you an ironclad case. I could stand up here and take you through the scriptures from now, amen, to next week. But I'm going to tell you the greatest argument I've got is just look at the lives that are around you. Look at the people that are sitting here today. Notice what God has done for them. This same thing happened about 2,000 years ago when a religious group came face to face with the power of God. They'd had their religion. They'd gone through the motions. They'd been to their dead, dull, lifeless Sabbath ceremonies. Week in and week out. But on this day, this Jewish holiday, they were gathered in Jerusalem and somebody wasn't acting like the rest of the Jews had been acting. Something else was taking place. Somebody was violating their norms. Somebody was going against all of the principles they'd ever believed. Acts chapter 2 Beginning with verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost, day of Pentecost was, fully come, was fully come, they were all they with, were one, all accord and in one, with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a suddenly sound from heaven. There came a as, sound from heaven. As of a rushing, as of a wind, rushing mighty wind. And it filled all, the house, filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, them cloven like, tongues as a fire. like as a fire. And it, upon and it sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the and Holy Ghost. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. 
Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now watch this. And there was a dwelling, there was at, dwelling Jerusalem at Jerusalem Jews, Jews devout men, devout men out, of out of every nation under heaven. Under heaven. Now when and this when was, noised, this was abroad, noised abroad, the multitude the came multitude together and were confounded because that every man, heard, every them man speak heard them speak in his own language. Uh, something's going on here that doesn't normally happen on these Jewish holidays. Something's not fitting our mold. Something's not following our pattern. It's so different from the religion we've always known. We don't understand it. We can't grasp it. In fact, some even made fun of it. Read verses 12 and 13. And they were all amazed and were in doubt. They were all amazed another. and they were in doubt saying one to another. What meaneth this? What does all this mean? Others, mocking, others said, mocking said, these men are full of new wine. They must be drunk to be acting like this at the church house. They gotta be drunk to be carrying on like this at the church house. Amen, something's wrong with them. I can tell they're Jews. I know they've been raised like we were raised. I know they've been taught what we were taught, but they're not acting according to the rules we've been given. Something's going on. They must be drunk, amen. But Peter stood up and said, I want you to listen to me. These are not drunk as you suppose, amen, seeing it is but the third hour of the day but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last day saith God I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh amen he began to preach to them but let me tell you he finally brought it down to his closing argument he finally brought it down to what really mattered. I love this. Read verse 33. Now he had a long defense. He, he, I mean, he, he knew court was in session that day. He knew the accusers wanted to charge them with WUI, worshiping under the influence. And he made his defense. But when it came time for his closing argument, I want to point you to verse 33. Listen to what he says to them. Therefore, being Therefore, by the right hand of God by the exalted, right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, uh -huh. he has shed, he has forth, shed this, forth this, which ye now which see, ye now see and hear. And hear. Now, I've given you all the theological arguments. I've dealt with everything from the scripture. We've been through all that. But let me tell you, it all boils down to this. You can't deny what you're experiencing right now. You can't deny what you're feeling. You can't deny what you've heard. You can't deny what you've seen. We can sit and argue the prophets. We can debate, amen, what Isaiah meant and who David was talking about. But you can't argue with what you feel right now. You can't argue with what God 
is doing in your life at this very moment. Amen. Peter made his ironclad case right here. This is it, my friends. I want you to know this that you now see and hear is what's going on. Amen. In the kingdom of God today. Musicians come. And I'm telling you, as he began his closing argument with that statement, it brought the crowd to the place it needed to bring them. And they asked the question that each of you need to ask. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they, heard this they were pricked in their heart pricked. And, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? All right. So here's their question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? You've convinced me. How can we argue? How can we debate? We've seen it. We've heard it. We've felt it. There's just one thing I want to know. How do I get in on it? Tell me what I need to do to experience this same transformation. The arguments are finished. You win the case. The judge of all has decided in your favor. Now I'm ready to join forces with you. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Can I tell you the question hasn't changed in 2,000 years? And because the question hasn't changed, the answer hasn't changed. Amen. Here's the answer that Peter gave. Amen. Read for me verses 38 and 39. Then Peter, then said, Peter unto them, said unto them, Repent. repent. And be Amen. First of all, ask God to forgive you of your sin. Amen. Recognize, Amen, that you have got things in your life that don't need to be there and ask God to take them out. Determine to live a different life than you've ever lived by His help. Repent, He said, and then be baptized. Every, Every one, of, one you of you in the in name, of, name Jesus of Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. Why in the name of Jesus because neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved amen wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow amen that's why he said be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and he he shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call amen there are two things I want you to notice about these two verses amen first of all he said if you'll repent and you'll be baptized in Jesus' name. You shall, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 39, he said the promise is to you, to your children, to all. Those two words, shall and all, make this an ironclad promise. It can't be broken. It can't be denied. 
I'm telling you to everybody under the sound of my voice, whether you're listening in this church building or you're listening at home or in your car, I'm telling you the promise is to all that are afar off. The promise is to all that are afar off. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, praise God. Let's stand this morning. He's made you an ironclad promise that you can have this experience that will transform your life. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are, what you've done, where you've been. He doesn't look at any of that. He sees somebody in need here in his presence today. And the only thing he cares about right now is he wants to meet your needs. He wants to transform your life. He wants to take care of you. Just like he did the blind man. and Just like he did the multitude in Acts chapter 2. These altars are open today. Would anybody like to come? Would anybody like to experience this great promise for yourself? Anybody like to receive this glorious gift of the Holy Ghost? It's for me. It's for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, church. Let's pray. Oh, why don't you come today? I've made an ironclad case. You can't deny the transformation that is brought about in the lives of the people. Oh, hallelujah. You may not understand it all, but you don't have to understand it. You just believe and receive it. And God will give it to you. Why don't we all gather around? Let's come find a place to pray this morning. We've still got time. Let's find a place to pray, everybody. Everybody, let's find a place to pray right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah.